Well, this morning represents a great day in the life of this church, I think. Because today we begin our series in the Gospel of Matthew. This is a series that I have been anticipating for a very, very long time. Nine years ago, when I began the preaching ministry here at Foothill Bible Church, I began with one prayer and three objectives. My prayer was that God would grant me the strength and the spiritual stamina to stand in this pulpit and to preach effectively the Word of God for 25 years. That would take me to the age of 70. That was my prayer. My three objectives were to first develop within all of us a a passion and desire, yea, an appetite for the serious exposition of the Word of God. To exalt the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of His Word. Toward that end... I chose to begin preaching here in this pulpit from the Gospel of John, as well as in a Sunday evening pulpit at that time through the book of Hebrews. My second objective in assuming this pulpit was to firmly root this body in the doctrines of grace and in particular, the sovereignty of God over every single aspect of life. That we might come to really know, not just pay lip service to, but to really know and seek to understand what it means to serve a sovereign God. Toward that end, we preached in the first 11 chapters of Genesis... And we began a very long and extended study through the book of Romans. My third objective from nine years ago was that we might come to understand the kingdom of God. That this great and grand theme that ties the scriptures together from Genesis to revelation, that we might come to really understand what it means and that we might order our lives accordingly. In the years that have transpired, I've added two more objectives. So the fourth objective is to invest my life in disciple-making among the younger generation for the express purpose of handing off the deposit of gospel truth firmly to another generation so that when my vigor abates, my eyes grow dim, I can go to my grave with confidence knowing that this church is firmly rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it is held on to with a tenacity by those who in not too many years will be standing where I am. Life goes quickly. My fifth objective 
is to clarify for us through the praying, planning, and preaching of what it means for God to expand his work of the church through church planting. That we might come to see that this is God's purpose in our time. It is the extension of the church of Jesus Christ. It is the means by which the gospel is promulgated throughout this entire world, and it is the outcome of that gospel preaching. It is the planting of churches. And so it is a great passion and objective of my heart. We arrive this morning at the Gospel of Matthew. We've entitled this series, and it will no doubt be a lengthy series, Behold Your King. Behold your king. Why Matthew? Why preach Matthew? Well, there are many answers to that question, and I'm sure that over time they will begin to fill themselves out. But let me just begin with a couple for you this morning. Why preach Matthew? Matthew is the bridge from the Old Testament into the New. The Old Testament closes with Malachi. It opens with Matthew. Matthew was placed there strategically at the beginning of the New Testament because it is the gateway, it is the doorway that opens into the New Testament. Without a good and proper understanding of Matthew's gospel, our understanding of the New Testament is diminished. We need to understand Matthew. Malachi is the last of the writing prophets. He wrote sometime around 430 B.C. When he put his pen down, God stopped speaking to his people. For the next 400 years, four centuries, God was silent. In fact, that period of time, some call it the intertestamental period, it is the period of time between the close of the old and the opening of the new, some 400 years, is called the silent years. The silent years. For those four plus centuries, God was still at work in the world. He was still at work among his ancient people, Israel, but he operated through the invisible hand of providence. The invisible hand of providence. And then, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and in verse 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It was at that time that God opened his mouth and began to speak again to his ancient people. And he did it through the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. John's message was simple. John's message was direct. John's message was unyielding. And it was simply this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why Matthew's gospel? Because Matthew's gospel is the most complete explanation of the kingdom in the entire New Testament. If you want to understand the kingdom of God, you must understand its presentation in the book of Matthew. To fail to understand Matthew is to fail to understand the kingdom of God. That's why we're studying Matthew. What is the kingdom of heaven? What is it? We can't possibly answer that question in in any kind of full and complete fashion in just our time together this morning. And so we will be working at that answer for a long time to come. I want to assume as we begin together that there is only a partial understanding of the kingdom of God. I am going to assume that among us, that if I were to put that question to you personally and ask you to define it for me, that you would struggle somewhat with that answer. That there are certain aspects of the kingdom of God that you're not quite sure about. It's fuzzy in your mind. So that's going to be my approach. I am going to assume a certain basic level of understanding with the Scriptures. But I am going to proceed on the assumption that we really don't have a fully orbed answer to the question of what is the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, they are interchangeable. The kingdom of God, my friends, leaps off the pages of Scripture. It leaps off the pages of Scripture. There is a very broad sense, a very broad sense to this concept, and it is God's kingly rule grounded in his sovereignty. It is his kingly rule grounded in his sovereignty as creator, sustainer, and director of all that exists. Open your Bibles to Psalm 103, and let's just take a look at that. Psalm 103, and beginning in verse 19. Psalm 103 and beginning in verse 19. The concept of God as king. David writes, beginning in verse 19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist says that God sovereignly rules over all, and thus all of creation is to bless his holy name. He is the king of creation, God the king. His rule extends to all that exists in space and time. King David again writes in 1 Chronicles 29, 12, you rule over all. 
you rule over all. First Chronicles 29, verse 12. God's rule is directed primarily through providence, what we call providence. That is how his kingly rule is directed. We can see it in Psalm 148. I'll turn you there. Psalm 148 and verse 8. The psalmist writes, Psalm 148 and verse 8, Fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind fulfilling His word. God rules primarily through providence. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17. You can go ahead and turn there as well. Daniel 4, 17. The angel says, Daniel 4, verse 17. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. God rules sovereignly over His creation, over the natural realm and over the realm of men. God is king. The administration of that kingly rule is through his eternal son. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 says, In him all things hold together. God's sovereign rule administered through his eternal son. Now, this concept of God's kingly rule over all of creation, everything fulfilling His will, performing His wishes, right down to the the smallest molecule anywhere in the universe, is what theologians call the universal kingdom of God. The universal kingdom of God. You might write that down somewhere because it undoubtedly will come up again and again. The universal kingdom of God. But there is another kingdom in addition to the universal kingdom. The scriptures speak of this other kingdom, and, and this other kingdom is not exactly identical, excuse me, identical with the universal kingdom. It's not identical. Jesus taught about this other kingdom, and he informed us that this other kingdom is one that his disciples should pray would come to earth, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This other kingdom, which had not yet come to earth, that the disciples were to pray would come to earth so that God's universal kingdom authority would now be manifested in the earthly realm is what theologians call the mediatorial kingdom or the theocratic kingdom. 
So we have a universal kingdom and we have a mediatorial kingdom. A mediatorial kingdom. One author talking about this mediatorial kingdom, he defines it this way. He says it is a more limited divine kingdom that is earth-oriented, time-related, and ethnic-centered. This particular kingdom here on earth, God rules in and through a human mediator. That is why it's called a mediatorial kingdom. There is a human mediator who acts between God and man. We can see the establishment of this mediatorial kingdom back in the Old Testament. So I'm going to turn you... Back to Exodus chapter 19. It's important that we go through these preliminary things because we are not Jews. We are not steeped in our Old Testament. When John the Baptist bursts onto the scene and his opening words are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was an understanding on the part of his audience as to exactly what he was talking about. We don't share that same understanding, and we need to develop it. Here in Exodus chapter 19, we see the establishment of this mediatorial kingdom quite clearly. Beginning in verse 4 of Exodus 19. God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, And a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. For the first time in human history, yea, for the only time in human history, a people, a nation was extracted from out of another nation. They were formed into a nation. They were constituted a people there at Sinai. And Moses was their mediator. Moses acted in that role of mediatorial ruler between God and them. He was the one who acted in a kingly fashion among the people. Near the end of Moses' life, he knows that he is not going to go into the promised land with the people. And so he gives them a statement in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and Verse 15, you don't need to turn there. But he told them that someday the Lord your God will raise up for you 
a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Moses says there's another one coming. There's another mediator coming. There's another great prophet coming, and he will be like unto me. That future prophet will exercise mediatorial authority over the nation. He will be a regal man. Of course, the scriptures of the New Testament tell us that that greater prophet was none other than Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ. For 800 years, this mediatorial kingdom existed on earth where God had a special relationship and he operated through a a series of human mediators, human mediatorial kings slash rulers. It all started out so well, didn't it? And as the centuries began to to roll on, the, the people began to turn further and further and further away from their God. They forgot their early confirmation that all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They grew faithless. They began to worship idols to the point where they became morally reprehensible, worse than those very Gentile nations that had been driven from the land. Eventually, the curses that God had told them in Deuteronomy 28 that would fall upon them should they fail to live up resulted in their removal from the promised land in a series of three deportations. Under the reign of the Babylonians, beginning first in 605 B.C., followed again in 597, and then finally in 586, the people were swept from their homeland. Their temple was destroyed. Their king was taken into captivity. And they began a long, long, long time of living under Gentile oppression. The time of the Gentiles began. For the two centuries leading up to their expulsion from the land, God had sent to them a series of prophets. One after another came to them and pleaded with them and called them to come back to their first commitments, back to their first love. The prophets repeatedly promised them forgiveness and healing if they would simply repent and turn back to God. And yet they hardened their hearts. These same prophets also spoke about a future day. A day when a great messianic king would come. And he would conquer all the enemies of God's people. And he would establish a kingdom again. In response to the coming of this great king, the prophet said, the nation would repent God would pour out on them and upon the world at large a a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity. That the ancient longing of the human heart would, would finally be fulfilled. 
Turn to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 35, where we see but one description of this great and coming time. The prophet speaks of the future days. The days when prosperity, peace would be upon the earth. A a return to the days of the Garden of Eden. Isaiah 35. A day when the future captives of Israel, those who would be taken in the Babylonian captivity 150 years later would someday return. Verse 1, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. And the Arabah will rejoice and blossom. Like a crocus, it will bloom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and, and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. And the scorched land will become a pool. And the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. And a highway will be there, a roadway. And it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it. But it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. And they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. We've sung that song, haven't we? That day, my friends, is not here. That day has not yet come. It is still future. It is the great and coming day of the King. When that great mediatorial King will once again rule upon the earth. This was the promise, by the way, of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 3 and verse 21. Preaching there, he said... He spoke of the period of restoration of all things. The period of restoration of all things. This is what Peter was talking about. About which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient times. The time of restoration. This was the promise that the Jewish people, the Apostle Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 8 and verse 19 where he said there the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. When the desert will flower like a garden, 
when the wild beasts will no longer tear and consume one another, when man will no longer make war, when the poor will be no more, when sickness and disease will be banished, when the demonic realm will be shut up, it will be a great and glorious day. And it's a day we still wait for. My friends, we can say with great confidence the establishment of the mediatorial kingdom is to a large degree the message of the Bible. This is the message of the Bible. It is the plan of God by which ultimately, through His crucified and resurrected Son, He is reconciling the world to Himself. It is the means by which He will bring about the eternal state. Go to your New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And verse 22. Paul writes there, beginning in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that Christ must reign in his great kingdom as the mediatorial ruler, until all of God's enemies have been crushed. The final enemy to be crushed is death itself. And once that final enemy has been crushed, then Christ will turn the kingdom over to the Father. The mediatorial kingdom will merge into the universal kingdom and there will be only one kingdom of God, the eternal state. If I can say it to you this way, to understand the kingdom is to understand the Bible. To understand the kingdom is to understand the Bible. To understand the Bible is to understand the kingdom. Because the two are so closely identified. I have a quote for you here from a theologian of mine. I wish I could say he was a personal friend, but he is only a friend through his writings. Dr. McLean writes in his book, The Greatness of the Kingdom, as follows. The kingdom of God is, in a certain and important sense, the grand central theme of all holy scripture. 
We are not forgetting the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the king eternal. And there could be no final kingdom apart from him and his work as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Surely the primary object of our faith must always be the one who is both Lord and Savior. But as we contemplate him and his manifold glories as revealed in the word of God, we shall inescapably come sooner or later to the kingdom of which he is the divine center. Christ is our redeemer. Christ is to be our focus. But we cannot and do not fully understand the work of Christ divorced from his kingdom. Charles Bridges, writing in the early part of the 19th century, says the following, and I quote, How overwhelming is the thought of this affection possessing the heart of God, of the deep interest of his infinite mind in the progress of the kingdom of his dear son, his thoughts engaged in it, his unsearchable plans embracing it and controlling all the mighty movements of the world to subserve this main design. Wow. What a thought. God is consumed with establishing his kingdom. It consumes him. It is the deepest passion of his heart. It stands behind all of his grand plans and design. He is absolutely working it out moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year. To bring this great mediatorial kingdom to earth. Beloved, if it is that important to God, it should be important to us. This is not merely an academic question. This is not merely something for theologians to tussle about. With McLean, I also say it is the unifying story of the Bible. It is the unifying story. When we rightly understand the kingdom, we will rightly understand the mind of God and His eternal purposes for this creation. It is going somewhere. And that ought to be comforting to us, don't you think? Life seems so messed up. Seems so random. Pointless. Purposeless. And yet, by faith, we know that God is working. And He is working towards a divine end. And all of these various threads of the tapestry that we don't understand how they come together, they do, and they come together in the kingdom of Christ. Why did Matthew write his gospel? Why did Matthew write his gospel? What is his purpose? Matthew wrote to answer one very basic and simple question. If Jesus is the king, 
where is the kingdom? If Jesus is the king, and the Old Testament has told us time and time again, if Jesus is the king, where is his kingdom? We need an answer for that question. The Gospel of Matthew was written in the early 50s. It was written before the church became predominantly Gentile. In the days when the church was still primarily made up of believing Jews. It is the written form of the message Matthew would have preached and taught. It is a teaching document. The Gospel of Matthew is a teaching document. In fact, turn to Matthew chapter 28. Verses 19 and 20, they're very familiar to us, right? The Great Commission. Where Matthew records Jesus' last words. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Matthew is a teaching document. It is the means and mechanism that Matthew left for the church to make disciples with. What were they to teach? They were to teach the Gospel of Matthew. The story of the kingdom. The book was originally written in Greek. It's an interesting gospel because, by the way, it is the only gospel that makes direct reference to the church. It was written for Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians, primarily. It holds Gentiles in a very high view as you read through the gospel. In fact, every time a Gentile is encountered in the gospel of Matthew, they respond favorably and they put the Jews to shame. Very interesting. Yet it's a Jewish gospel. Matthew's gospel has a lot to say about discipleship. A lot. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? The word disciple means learner. A disciple is a learner. A learner. It's one who physically follows another person around so that he or she can learn from them. We would call them today an apprentice. A disciple is an apprentice. They follow someone around that they might learn from them, and that person might teach them. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.2, right, the things that you have heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust the faithful men who will be able to what? Teach others also. Timothy, you've been hanging around with me. You've learned things from me. I want you to pass it on to other men who can pass it on to other men. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
Follow me as I follow Christ. Discipleship cannot occur without teaching. It is fundamentally a transfer of knowledge from one to another. Now, in our 21st century Western culture, we use the word teaching and everybody thinks about classrooms. That's where everybody sits down but one person. One person does all the work, everyone else sits. And the most effective disciples, we say, are the ones who write down the most of what the teacher says and then are able to respond again, spitting it back out in proper order and form on the paper exam that follows, right? And we call that education. That is not what it means to be taught. I'm not saying that a classroom has no purpose and no place. I'm just saying it doesn't end there. It doesn't end here either. It doesn't end with merely a sermon. That's not enough. It needs to be lives lived together, learning from one another as we go through life together, bringing the Bible to bear that it might teach us in the various situations and circumstances of life. We think the most effective way to do that is in the context of small groups. Small groups. And so we are planning to redouble, yea, triple our efforts in the area of small groups beginning this fall. Many people are wondering, what's the fall going to look like? Well, in many ways, it, it will be just like it always has been. But in one very significant way, it will be profoundly different. And that is, it is our hope, it is our desire, it will be our exhortation, it is our prayer that every one of us are involved in a small group of other believers living life together, having the Word of God brought to bear on life as we grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Matthew, by the way, in his Gospel, is very, very... focused on making us understand that Jesus is the teacher. He reminds us of that by referring to Jesus and his activity 23 times by the words teach, teacher, or teaching. It's used over and over again. The importance of the words of Jesus, by the way, are revealed by the fact that of the 1,071 verses in Matthew, 644 contain Jesus' spoken word. Again, back to Matthew 28. Make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. What is my curriculum? What do I use? What is it you want me to teach them? I want you to teach them Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, all the way through Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20. That's what I want you to teach. The structure of the book of Matthew is a very simple structure. It begins thematically, not chronologically. It begins thematically. Towards the end, it is more chronological. The early part of the book is thematically arranged. It is arranged in a very simple form. It's arranged with a narrative followed by a discourse. 
Narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse. A, a discourse is a, is a formal and lengthy discussion of a particular subject. You might call it a sermon. That's how the book is laid out. You could very simply say the book of Matthew is about the deeds and the discourses of Jesus. There are five of them recorded for us in Matthew's gospel. Get to Matthew chapter 5 and let me show you these five discourses. Gives us a way of getting our arms around this book. The first discourse or the first sermon is Matthew chapter 5. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's interesting, all five of these discourses are addressed to his disciples. They are addressed to his disciples. They are what Jesus spoke to his disciples. Things he wanted them to know concerning the kingdom of God. Chapter 5 and verse 1, And when he, that is Jesus, saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying. And then we enter into what everyone knows as the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus finishes this lengthy discourse, turning to chapter 7 and verse 28, we have a little indicator phrase that occurs five times in the gospel and sets these discourses apart. 7 and 28 Matthew says, the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, that's the little indicator that appears over and over again. When Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. I can't wait till we get to the Sermon on the Mount. It is going to be a wonderful study. But it begins, and its primary focus is upon his disciples, not the multitudes. And that will help us in our interpretation of that particular sermon. The next discourse that Matthew records for us, the second one, is in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. We see the marker again. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans. And he goes on here and instructs his disciples in what kind of kingdom preaching ministry they are to have. Chapter 11 and verse 1 closes that teaching out. And it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Another discourse, another sermon, another lengthy discussion, another teaching time designed for his disciples. The third one begins in chapter 13. Chapter 13, on that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Drop down to verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 36. 
And when he had left the multitudes and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. In this particular discourse, Jesus is speaking to two groups of people at the same time, and he is speaking in parables. We're going to note that this is the first time he really uses parables, and they have a very particular purpose. He has two audiences that he is simultaneously addressing. From one group, he is obscuring the truth. To the other group, he is unfolding the truth, and he uses parables to do it. When he is finished with his parables, verse 53 And it came about when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. It's the end of the third discourse. The fourth discourse begins in chapter 18. Remember, it's narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse. That's how it's put together. So it'll be, what did Jesus do? What did he teach? Then what did he do? Then what did he teach? Then what did he do? Then what did he teach? That's the way the book unfolds. Chapter 18, at that time, Jesus came, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he speaks through chapter 18. It's another discourse, another teaching. And he talks about humility as being essential for the kingdom. He closes this time out, chapter 19 and verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The final discourse begins in chapter 24. It's typically known as the Olivet Discourse because it was given on the side of the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse. It is with regard to teaching with regard to the return of the king. Chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to them. Verse 3, and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus spends the next two chapters answering those questions. We arrive at chapter 26, verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and so forth. After that, we arrive at the final narrative, which is the passion of Christ. This book is about the deeds and the discourses of Jesus. It is a teaching document. It is a disciple-making document. It is designed to instruct the people of God with regard to the answer to the question, if Jesus is king, where is the kingdom? And to take that understanding to all the world, not just to the Jewish world, but to the nations, Matthew 28 and verse 19, so that they might know the answer to that question as well. Why must they know as well? Very simply, because the kingdom of God is the unifying theme of Scripture. Let me take you, by the way, all the way to Acts chapter 28. Acts 
Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. Paul is under house arrest. Says he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Right up to the end, the Apostle Paul was still teaching about the kingdom of God. It is the message. We're going to fulfill the Great Commission. We need to understand the kingdom of God. We need to understand it. Next week, by God's good grace, I intend to preach the entire book of Matthew in one sermon. The reason I want to do that is to give the lay of the land. Where are we going? And then we will begin to take it apart. Have no fear. The following week, it will be Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. And that will be more than enough to chew on. My friends, we're going to have to work hard at this. You know, we live in a, in a day and an age of, of everything's instant, right? Everything, even instant potatoes are too slow these days. But they're good, yeah. We're going to have to work at it. But you know what? If, if, if the concept of the kingdom of God unfolds the very mind of God, what more worthy endeavor could there possibly be for any of us than to come close to the very closest thing on his heart? I am absolutely overwhelmed with expectation and joy to begin this journey together in Matthew's Gospel. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for arriving, allowing us to arrive at this day. Oh Lord, how I have longed for the time to begin this great work. How I have grown to love and treasure this Gospel. And Lord, how I long to understand it more fully to pull it apart, to, to look at every leaf and look under every leaf, to examine every twig, every branch. And yet, Lord, at the same time, not to lose sight of the great and grand scheme of redemption that it lays out for us. Our Father, if it is true that we, by entering into a study of the kingdom of God, are, are entering into that which is closest to your heart, for it is there that you display your glory most fully. And our Father, there is no more worthy endeavor that we could undertake. We pray as we begin together with our study, Father, that your Spirit would superintend. We pray, Lord, that we might rightly understand the Word of God. I pray that you would help me, Lord, not to come with presupposition but to allow the Scriptures to speak for themselves and that you would humble my heart and, and that of my brothers and sisters here before the Word of God. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for His cross work for us. 
thank you, our Father, that it doesn't end there. That it is the resurrection. He is the resurrected King and He is coming to establish His great kingdom. O Lord, through faith in Him, we have a citizenship in that kingdom. May that reality grab hold of us. That the gospel of the kingdom is not a duty, but a declaration. May that reality transform our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.